0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, September 24th. I'm Marco Werman. The UN envoy for Syria says the situation there is extremely bad and getting worse. We hear how Syrian rebels are welcoming foreign jihadis into their midst.
1: No one is supporting them, so when the jihadis come with their expertise, with their money, with their material support, they would
2: take
0: that. Also, India fights malnutrition with a homegrown version of a banned
2: import. If we can use the local process using, you know, local products, we see no reason not to.
3: PRI's the world is supported by Medtronic. Hosting 25 Global Heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH and Frontline, come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educate Desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation. Tuesday night at nine, eight central on PBS. I'm
0: Marco Werman, and this is the World. The UN General Assembly gets underway this week in New York. Topping the agenda is Syria. Diplomats will be meeting to talk about the crisis there. But a meeting that isn't happening is the hot topic in some circles. President Obama won't sit down with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. That may be in part because Netanyahu seems to be taking sides in the U.S. presidential election. The world's Aaron
4: Schachter explains. It isn't terribly shocking to find the Middle East playing a role in U.S. election year politics, but the degree to which Israel's leader has been inserted, or inserted himself, into the campaign has caught some Mideast pundits by surprise.
5: The fact is that every day that passes, Iran gets closer and closer to nuclear bombs.
4: This is part of what's being referred to as Netanyahu's red line speech and is now part of an ad run by a super PAC in support of Mitt Romney for president.
5: The world tells Israel,
4: wait, there's still time. And I say, wait for what? Wait until when?
3: The world needs American strength,
6: not apologies. The real red line that's been crossed so far is the prime minister's inserting himself into american domestic politics
4: michael desh is a political scientist with notre dame's institute for advanced study he says netanyahu's overt criticism of obama is an attempt to echo the romney claim that obama is throwing israel under the bus desh wrote an article in foreign affairs magazine called bibi's chutzpah
6: once you start playing domestic politics in this country Uh, you know, that opens the door for a second-term American president to play domestic politics in Israel. So I think we shouldn't underestimate how much fire Netanyahu is playing with here.
4: Netanyahu's office rejected accusations of interference in the U.S. elections, calling the charge completely groundless. Whether or not that's true, Bar-Ilan University political science professor Gerald Steinberg says, come on, the U.S. finagles in Israeli politics all the time, including, he says, a fairly brazen attempt by the Clinton administration to stop Netanyahu from becoming prime minister in the mid-1990s. That campaign failed. Steinberg says Israelis know that Netanyahu has a troubled relationship with President Obama. He says there's no doubt the Israeli premier is attempting to use the U.S. elections to advance Israeli interests.
0: I don't know whether he made a
1: mistake in this or whether this was calculated it's got a much wider context, and that's the context over the red lines with Iran. And those are national interest issues. They're not personal. But I think that Netanyahu is calculating, is rational. And if he crossed the red line, there was a purpose for that.
4: Which is essentially what President Obama said last night on 60 Minutes. Different nations have different national interests. The Romney view leans more toward the harsher stance on Iran that Netanyahu is pushing. The two have known each other for decades, when they both worked at a Boston consulting firm. During a visit this summer to Israel, Romney declared that he would, quote, treat Israel like the friend and ally that it is. And a senior Romney strategist has said that a President Romney would back Israel's right to unilaterally bomb Iran. David Rothkopf is editor-at-large for Foreign Policy magazine. He says the Romney-Netanyahu embrace shouldn't come as a surprise. Netanyahu himself has said that he speaks English with a Republican accent. He has had long... Uh, ties to the Republican Party. I think he's been frustrated by his relationship with President Obama and the Obama administration. So perhaps in Netanyahu's view, there's no real downside to pressuring a Democratic president on Iran, even if Obama wins a second term. For The World, I'm Aaron Schechter. As we mentioned,
0: Syria is the primary focus as the U.N. General Assembly gets underway. Today, the new international envoy to Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, painted a grim picture for the Security Council. The situation in Syria is extremely bad and getting
5: worse. That it is a threat to the region and
0: a threat to uh, peace and security in the world. Lakhdar Brahimi there on the job as special envoy to Syria for just three weeks. Guardian reporter Haith abdullah Had is in Istanbul now, but he recently returned from Syria where he spent time with various rebel factions. He says that one problem the U.N. may face in dealing with Syrian rebels is knowing which ones to deal with
1: they 're working together, but they 're very very diverse they 're very fragmented they, they, they don 't have a structure they don 't have a command structure. Uh, they are in confrontation with each other they compete with each other, then you have the military councils, then you have the jihadi groups, then you have the Islamist groups you have the Muslim brotherhood, so you have like a huge disarray of 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 opposition uh, forces functioning inside Syria at the moment. And this is partly the reason why they're incapable of holding ground. They're, this is why they're incapable of taking over Aleppo or actually mustering enough forces to control air, you know, cities, towns, because there is disarray and there is no command and structure.
0: Now, you wrote in The Guardian newspaper yesterday about the influx of foreign fighters. Talk about how that mix uh, of non-Syrian and Syrian rebels is causing problems around the border crossings and other areas. I mean, are, are those problems making other conflicts grow even bigger?
1: Yes, of course. You know, jihadi fighters, when they wanted to, when they want to go to Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan to fight, they have to really cross so many hurdles. They have to change passport, dodge military uh, uh, intelligence units, they have to avoid CIA, Mi six, whatever uh, security forces. To go fight in Syria, all they have to do is take a flight to southern Turkey, to Hatay, and then hike across the border, and they are there in the middle of the fighting group. The rebels, the Free Syrian Army rebels, cringe. They don't want to admit the presence of foreign jihadis. They know this would really derail whatever support they have from the Western uh, or from the international community. Mm. And at the same time, they're desperate for support. They need those guys because those guys are veterans of so many wars before that. Mm-hmm. So the jihadis are uh, not more than 10%, 15%, but that's a lot. That's a lot in, on the grounds in the in Syria. I've seen them in eastern Syria, in Deir ez I've seen them in Aleppo. And they're taking ground, and they're taking ground because the the, the Syrians are desperate for support. No one is supporting them. So when the Jihadis come with their expertise, with their money, with their material support, they will take that.
0: We mentioned earlier that uh, U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says Syria is at the top of the agenda at the U.N. General Assembly uh, in New York this week. So uh, tell us, I mean, if those diplomats in New York happen to be listening right now, what should they know about what's happening on the ground in Syria? Uh, What's getting missed in, in the whole debate? (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, Lebanon was on top of the agenda for 15 years. Iraq was on top of the agenda for 10 years, 15 years. I don't think there is there are people there in Syria who have much hope on uh, Lakhdar al-Ibrahimi or Ban Ki-moon or uh, Kofi Annan or anyone. Mm-hmm. There is so much cynicism down there on the streets of the front lines of Syria. Mm-hmm. The longer it takes, the more it becomes uh, complicated, the more jihadi elements take over. So... While guys are talking in the UN, the situation is becoming really, really drastic and complicated on the ground. And this, we have seen this so many times before. We've seen it in Rwanda, we've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it in Lebanon. Uh, but as long as this, this, this tailmate happening between the Russians and the Americans, the Iranians and, and the Western community, Syria will continue to be a quagmire.
0: The Guardian's Khaith Abdullahad speaking with us from Istanbul about the current situation in Syria. Thank you, as always, Khaith. Thank you, Mark. Now, here's some news you can use. There's a new cloud in the sky, as in a real up-there-in-the-sky cloud. Here's the world's Alex Galifant.
7: It's probably not new-new, but more newly noticed, a cloud formation that a group of cloud spotters have called undulatus asperatus. That's Latin for agitated wave like you didn't know. Gavin Pretor-Pinney is with the UK-based Cloud Appreciation Society. Its manifesto takes a stand against blue sky thinking. Undulatus Asperatus, he says, has a deep sea quality. It's like you're snorkeling way down and looking up at the underside of the surface of the sea. And it's a turbulent,
3: uh, windy day, and the the waves on the surface are, are chaotic and turbulent.
7: The cloud formation is pretty dramatic, The kind of thing you'd take a photo of, if you could. People probably saw it over the years, but they were fleeting moments, not captured and shared with the world. Today that's easy, people have cameras everywhere, including on their phones, and in 2006, Pretor Pinney started receiving photos of this unusual cloud, first from Iowa and then from France, Norway and other places.
8: They just sent in, look, here's a picture of a weird cloud we saw. And, uh, you know, the the Cloud Appreciation Society, (laughs) that's the place to send them. Where else are you going to send them?
7: Problem was, the cloud, then unnamed, didn't match any previously described formations. As you know, there are lots of types of clouds. There's one called undulatus even, but this was a bit different. Where did it
9: fit? The beginning of cloud classification is in many ways the beginning of our serious understanding of the weather.
7: Brian Cathcart is the author of Rain. Not literally the author of Rain, that would make him terribly powerful. A book called Rain. In it, he tells the story of Luke Howard, a London chemist in the early 1800s who'd walked from his office to his factory looking up at the sky, thinking about clouds and figuring out their patterns.
9: This became a sort of obsession, and he eventually managed to pin down an order of clouds.
7: Luke Howard organised clouds into families, and in the manner of flora and fauna, gave them Latin names, cirrus, cumulus, and stratus. The system allowed him to combine the types to classify other cloud varieties. Suddenly, the world had a way of talking about clouds and weather that could be shared and agreed upon, a big step up from folk wisdom about red skies at night.
9: It's really one of two or three things that are the key to to scientific meteorology.
7: Luke Howard's system remains in use, although we now recognise many more clouds than he was able to observe over London. Today, cloud classifications are governed by the World Meteorological Organisation in Geneva. If they say yes to Undulatus Asperatus, the agitated wave, it'll be included in the International Cloud Atlas. Don't hold your breath. Last edition was 1975. And the last time a new variety of cloud was officially recognized was back in 1951. Who can forget the year of Cirrus in Tortoise? But there's more to this than dramatic photos and fun with Latin. In a warming world, you often get more clouds. Here's my colleague, the world's environment editor, Peter Thompson.
8: A warmer atmosphere brings more evaporation of water from the seas, and that puts more water into the atmospheric system. And that generally means more clouds.
7: Problem is, clouds play an ambiguous role in the world's great climate change drama. Some warm things up, others cool things down. They're local and ephemeral, but they exhibit patterns you can see repeated across the globe.
8: To the degree that we can understand better what these newly identified subspecies of clouds are, the more we can understand what role all clouds have in shaping the future climate.
7: In other words, clouds aren't just things you wander lonely as. And that kind of research looks set to grow. The Cloud Appreciation Society will soon release a geotagged cloud-watching app. It'll send data on all types of cloud to climate researchers based in the UK. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant.
0: You can see the dramatic undulatus aspiratus photo from Iowa at theworld.org. And we want to see your best cloud pictures. Post them as
3: well at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, joining with the World Heart Federation to celebrate World Heart Day, September 29th, with a focus on women, children, and heart disease. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. India has seen rapid economic growth, but it still hasn't managed to tackle a long-standing problem with child malnutrition. Over 40% of the world's underweight children live in India, according to the World Health Organization. Treatments are now available that can reverse malnutrition relatively easily, but India has refused to import those products. So some doctors in Mumbai have come up with a homegrown solution.
6: Christopher Wirth has a story. Inside a small shack in Mumbai's largest slum, a group of health workers struggles to coax a three year old girl onto a baby scale. Dr. Dr. Yvelet Sakira is with a local aid organization called Sneha. The group wants to know how many children in the slum have slipped from a stage of moderate malnutrition to what's known as severe acute malnutrition. Not having any luck getting the child's weight, Dr. Sakira lifts the girl into her arms.
0: She looks malnourished.
4: If you can see the hands and the feet, very thin, a part the belly, so
0: she must be on the borderline.
6: Eight million children in India suffer from severe acute malnutrition, according to the Indian government. But when it comes to treating them, India lacks what many consider one of the best tools available so-called ready-to-use therapeutic foods. These are the type of pre-packaged protein-rich nutritional products that had a big impact in Africa beginning around a decade ago. There was a revolution in the treatment of severe malnutrition. Stéphane Doyon is with Doctors Without Borders. That revolution was led by the most well-known therapeutic food, Plumpy Nut, made by the French company Nutriset. It's a patented concoction of peanut butter and micronutrients that allows severely malnourished children to be treated at home instead of at a hospital. Doyon says that means aid workers have been able to treat far more kids than ever before in countries such as Ethiopia and Niger. As a matter of fact, the number of children treating every year in Niger is 300,000 from severe malnutrition. And this number before was not even treated in the world. With that kind of success in Africa, the United Nations Children's Organization, UNICEF, shipped Plumpy Nut to India in 2009 to help with malnutrition here. But that move sparked controversy. Plumpy Nut is not authorized for the treatment of malnutrition in India. And some doctors feared that dependence on a foreign import would come at the expense of the kind of locally produced food that Indian families prepare at home. In response, the Indian government banned Plumpy Nut and forced UNICEF to send its stock back to Europe, Dr. Vandana Prasad is with the Public Health Resource Network, which fought the use of plumpy nut in India. She says she's not opposed to therapeutic foods altogether, just those made by big companies outside India.
2: Why can we not produce it here? If we can use the local process using you know, local products, we see no reason not to.
6: Back in the Mumbai slum, that's exactly what Macron survey is doing. He's blending together a peanut butter paste that looks like plumpy nut, but that's made from local ingredients. He stands over a mixer in a small production kitchen. Once the mixing is done, it's put through the grinder. We're making a new batch almost every week. But before this made-in-India product can be used to treat malnutrition, it has to be tested. So doctors at a hospital near the slum are conducting a trial of about 200 children. Dr. Mamta Manglani leads the study. She says so far it's shown that therapeutic food can be just as effective in India as it's been in Africa.
0: We have been now looking at some interim results and the type of weight gain we have observed – The children
2: do not lose weight again if they are treated with medical nutrition therapy.
6: Full results of the trial are due in December. If they show sustained improvement, she says, that will help convince Indian politicians that therapeutic food made in local production kitchens has a role to play in India. Dr. Evelet Sikira of the aid group Sneha works with Manglani. She believes that with the help of government, a large-scale rollout could eradicate severe acute malnutrition, at least among India's youngest children, in just five years.
1: The medical nutritional therapy... I, I see a vision where it's, it's there all over the country, and these smaller production units can be set up anywhere.
6: And others have an even grander vision. While imports of plumpy nut are banned in India, there's no reason this country can't export its product. Some see a future where India could become a major producer of low-cost, ready-to-use therapeutic foods used all over the globe. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, Mumbai, India. That story
0: was produced with support from the International Reporting Project. We have photos from Mumbai's largest slum and the challenging conditions there for children. Christopher Worth sent us some pictures. They're all at theworld.org. Now a quick look at the world's second biggest exporter of cotton—that's Uzbekistan. Each year in the Central Asian nation, young and old alike are ordered to leave school or their jobs and head to the fields to help with the annual cotton harvest. The government's cotton harvest has been going on for decades.
3: Well, it's always been like that. Even my parents—they went to cotton picking, and it was—I uh, think when they were students, mid-fifties, they would go.
0: That's Dilorim Ibrahimova of the BBC's Uzbek service. She says that despite the fact that cotton picking was mechanized during the Soviet years, Uzbekistan still depends on manual labor to pick what's
3: left in the fields. Imagine that you are bent and cotton has also thorns. Your hands, your fingers are scratched and you have to bend, and uh, you have an apron in front of you, and it burdens you, so it's not that easy.
0: Still, not everyone looks back on their time in Uzbekistan's cotton fields with complete contempt. Louisa Hodaikulova also with the BBC's Uzbek service, spent five autumns in a row picking cotton when she was a college student.
2: Personally, me, I took it with a bit of fun, to be honest, because it was an opportunity to be away from the family, to feel your independence a bit. And Uzbek girls, they're not allowed to go on dates, but the cotton picking season was an opportunity to meet the boys and have a chat with them.
0: In fact, Hoda Kolova met her husband during one picking season, and they were married the next year. But while romances flourished, so too did diseases. She remembers in particular the water tank.
2: Once a week, they would bring water into that water tank, very murky water in there and you would just get water for any of your needs out of it you would just boil it and drink it and then they would use the same water for cooking food and then you would use the same water for washing yourself and it was in the open you know.
0: These days, both Hodaikalova and Ibrahimova are persona non grata when it comes to the cotton harvest. The Uzbek government does not allow journalists to cover the harvest or participate in it. Journalists say it's difficult to know exactly what the conditions are like now. The Uzbek government also does not allow the International Labor Organization to monitor the harvest. Human rights groups contend that the conditions remain woeful, that young children are verbally and physically abused. They say children as young as 10 are pressed to pick more than 100 pounds of cotton a day. The Uzbek prime minister maintains that this kind of child labor has been banned this year. Still ahead, where in the world did Kevin Costner have to go to film to make a bid for an Emmy? First, though, news headlines on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Just ahead, people in Libya are protesting against violence and hate. This Libyan man says the recent killing of four Americans is a much more serious offense against Islam than anything else.
5: These people have offended and tarnished both the reputation of Islam, the prophet, beyond any uh, movie or cartoon or anything like that.
3: ERI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service. P.R.I. and WGBH in Boston. There has been an outpouring of emotion in Libya since the killing of U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens earlier this month, and it's not about the anti-Islam video or cartoons of the prophet. The demonstrations and vigils are to protest against violence and hate, and it's all forced the Libyan government to take action. It says it's disarming many of the militias left over from the revolution. al Muntasser Muntaser was a friend of Ambassador Stevens. He's a Libyan, a businessman based in the Libyan. Capital Tripoli. Uh, Mr. Montessier, tell us about the kinds of demonstrations and vigils that have been taking place in Libya over the last couple of weeks.
5: This has been going on in all major cities here, but more so in Benghazi, the city where that tragedy happened. Everybody knows who this amazing person was and what he's done for this country. And regardless of that, he's an innocent man whose life was taken away for. Uh, for something that he had nothing to do with or his government. Hmm. And there is no excuse for this, everybody agrees on that, and if if the issue was insulting Islam or insulting our Prophet peace be upon him, these people have offended and tarnished both the reputation of Islam, the prophet, beyond any uh, movie or cartoon or anything like that.
0: Right. You say everyone agrees with, with what's going on and the demonstrations, but who's actually taking part in the demonstrations?
5: These are ordinary people. These are people who have, who have realized that unless something is done by us, the same people who demonstrated for freedom and demonstrated to, to uh, overthrow the regime, Realize that our work is not done. And now we are replacing one tyrant with many. And these are just normal people that have nothing to do with the government. The government hasn't done anything about the security situation or the militias that are, uh, as we are seeing or we've seen the past couple of weeks, have really uh, gotten out of control.
0: But but now it seems that the government, the Libyan government, is aiming to disarm many of the militias. What's going on there?
5: Um, frankly, I think the people of Benghazi have really done most of that work. That they armed the three major uh, militias in Benghazi.
0: But well, how, of... how do you, how do you do that if you're if you're a civilian? You go out and you you meet some of the Islamists and you say, "We need your guns."
5: Yeah, they basically uh, went to the main camps. And by the way, one of those uh, militias is based on the main camp in Benghazi, where last year, on February 17th, probably the same people went there to face the guns and the anti-aircraft machine guns of the Gaddafi regime, and also bravely took over that camp. And they've done the same thing now, peacefully, and those militias were overwhelmed by the number of people and the sentiment uh, that we are not going to put up with that anymore.
0: I mean, if citizens can go into a, a militia camp in Benghazi and get the militia men to lay down their guns, what, what does that say about the strength of those militias?
5: They probably did use some restraint. There are some people who got shot. There are some people who got killed trying to take over these uh, militias. But the number of people they realize, just like the regime last year realized before, they can't really... Uh, people don't care anymore about life and death. They care more about Libya.
0: Mr. Muntaser. you know, the overwhelming image here in the U.S. over the last two weeks has been of a Muslim world gripped with an immense rage against that movie Insulting the Prophet, leading, of course, to the tragic death of uh, Ambassador Christopher Stevens, then then massive rage against the French cartoon. Uh, The Libyan experience, though, seems rather opposite to that reaction. What are your thoughts on that?
5: As I said before, as a Muslim, uh, of course, I'm deeply offended by anything that insults uh, to us. He's the greatest uh, human being that ever lived. So of course, we're outraged and uh, uh, we will make our voices heard peacefully, things like that. But then once people take that as an excuse to commit crimes such as this to, you know, peaceful protesting is one thing, but to bring uh, rpgs and uh, anti-aircraft machine guns and go and attack a friendly nations uh, consulate that's just beyond anything that really is required in a situation like this and as i said before that's a much bigger insult to our religion and our traditions of uh, hospitality and friendship this is beyond anything like that that the outrage we feel now that this is a much bigger problem than any silly movie or any uh, silly cartoons. This is a much bigger uh, issue than just, it's, it's not an attack just on America. This is an attack on Libya and our friends and allies and in a country that prides itself on hospitality and uh, on the protection of its uh, friends that are ho- uh, being hosted here in Libya.
0: Tripoli businessman Muntas Muntaster, thanks very much for speaking with us uh, about the recent demonstrations against violence and, and guns in Libya. Thank you. It's the messiest, most public scandal that China's Communist Party leaders have had to confront in decades. It involves a former police chief, the wife of a once-prominent politician, and a murdered British businessman. And now all eyes are on the fallen politician himself, Bo Xilai. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. And Mary Kay, this is a complex plot, to say the least. So connect the dots for us between Bo Xilai, his wife, and now this former top cop, Wang Lijun.
2: The news today is that Wang Jun was sentenced to 15 years in prison with one year additional sur- surrender of political rights, which was considered to be a pretty lenient sentence given that he could have been sentenced to a charge of treason and could have gotten death for it. Of course, the other case that is outstanding at this point is that of Bo Xilai himself. Bo Xilai was a Politburo member. Uh, He was uh, an up-and-coming, very ambitious party official who had been the party chief in the city of Dalian, a business-oriented city in the Northeast, then moved to Chongqing. He was known both for his populist policies in Chongqing and also for a rather vicious strike hard against crime campaign. And Wang Li Jun was the police officer who was his enforcer on that campaign. What's interesting about the way the case was prosecuted against Wang Li Jun is he had fled to the US consulate in February. It became clear after he was there for 36 hours that something very odd was going on. And what we found out months later was that what was going on was that he was singing to the U.S. diplomats and telling them what had happened with the murder of this British businessman. Um, And he said the wife of Bo murdered this guy um, because they had had a dispute. She wanted him to help her get money out of the country, and he wanted a bigger cut than she was willing to give. He had with him evidence, uh, including a recording of Bo wife's confession. He said that he had blood from the heart of the British businessman that showed that he had been poisoned. Now, in the um, Xinhua news account uh, of what happened in the trial, it says that at one point at the end of January, when Wang Lijun went to the top Communist Party official in Chongqing, that is no other person than Bo Xilai, although they didn't mention Bo Xilai by name, mm-hmm. and he told him um, what he believed had happened and that he had evidence Bo Xilai slapped him.
0: So so Wang Lijun went to the Americans and told them this story. Did he feel that he didn't get any kind of traction with Bo Xilai?
2: Well, when he went to the Americans, he was in fear of his life. He had gone to Bo Xilai. Bo Xilai slapped him. Wang Lijun was removed from his position by Bo Xilai, and several of his allies within the police force were arrested and prosecuted um, and and tortured in some cases. So he sort of saw what was going on and thought, I'm getting out of here, went to the U.S. embassy and asked for political asylum. Um, the U.S. declined to give him political asylum. It was just before Xi Jinping, current vice president, likely to be the next head of the Communist Party and president of China, was going to visit the U.S. And it was just a little too sticky. This was not a human rights dissident. This was someone who had a very messy human rights record himself as police chief of Chongqing. So he left. He was taken into custody by the central government authorities, which got him out of the grips of the Chongqing authorities, who were also waiting outside the consulate wanting to take him in. Um, And that might be the way that, you know, he he slipped through um, not living to tell the tale, quite literally.
0: So is there a strategy for the Chinese authorities now in dealing with this case? I mean, they're now back to Bo Xilai, the central character. I mean, what, what happens to him?
2: Well, that's the big question, and nobody really knows. He's said to be in the northeast of China, undergoing interrogation, we're coming up on a once every 10-year transfer of leadership authority. There was a time only a few months ago when Bo Xilai was supposed to be one of those in the ascendancy. He was looking for a slot in the Politburo Standing Committee. That's not going to happen. He's been stripped of his party positions. But he still has a lot of allies. And behind the scenes, it's believed that those allies have been sort of jockeying and trying to make sure that he gets the lightest possible treatment. So it's a it's an open question and a very interesting question, how Boa Xilai is taken care of and whether that happens before the party Congress is held.
0: The World's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing. Thanks for helping to unravel this a little bit today.
2: Thank you, Marco.
0: In Spain, the issue of abortion is being used again to score political points. Abortion is legal there in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. That law was passed under the previous socialist government. It also gave girls who are 16 and 17 the right to get an abortion without parental consent. Now the new conservative government wants a new law, one that recriminalizes
9: abortion. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. Spain's conservatives have long argued that abortion is not a right, it's a crime. In the old days, under the dictator General Francisco Franco, there were three exceptions. In the case of rape, if a mother's health would be put at serious risk, or if the fetus was deformed. Now the conservative government of Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy wants to bring the so-called exceptions law back and go even further, Even if the fetus is deformed, the bill says, it must be delivered regardless. The idea is that women who want to be mothers, said Spain's health minister, Ana Mato, recently, shouldn't be able to get abortions due to social, economic and family pressures. Many conservative Spaniards see the abortion bill as progressive, a long-needed reform. Nicolás de Carcedéas is with the Spanish chapter of Right to Life. If the abortion law is amended, he told Spanish TV, it would be the first time in 30 years that we see an advancement in the protection of life in Spain. We urge the government not to tarry, he said, as there are some 300 abortions performed each day here. But Spanish society is actually split down the middle on what constitutes moving forward or backward, When former socialist prime minister José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero first came to power in 2004, he passed a raft of so-called progressive laws. He liberalized abortion, legalized gay marriage, let same-sex couples adopt children. Back then, the economy was strong, and Zapatero capitalized on the country's general sense of well-being to advance his social causes. There were protests, but by and large, he scored points among Spanish liberals. Socialist leader Purificación Causapie says with regard to abortion, Zapatero put Spain on par with most of the rest of Europe. Rajoy's proposal, she said, sets us at the end of the line in Europe with regard to rights and liberties for women. In his second term, Zapatero dropped his social agenda, overwhelmed by the financial crisis. Today, current Prime Minister Rajoy appears just as overwhelmed. But Spain's sinking economy may just be what's allowing him to embark on a social about-face. He may be betting that most people are too busy worrying about their jobs to object strenuously to his proposed restrictions on abortion. And like Zapatero in his day, it could turn out to be the only arena in which he scores some points. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona.
0: Now here's a southern fiddle tune that sets just the right beat for today's GeoQuiz. (laughs) ¶¶ It's a tune called The Big Sandy River, named after the actual river that divides West Virginia and Kentucky. And that's the geographical setting for the famous feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Last night at the Emmys, the History Channel won several honors for its miniseries, Hatfields and McCoys. So do you happen to know where the filming took place for this 19th century American drama? The horse's guns and actors in the story of honor and revenge were nowhere near the Appalachian Mountains. They were in the shadow of the Southern Carpathians in a region known for its medieval castles, monasteries and dare I say it, vampires. So, can you name the country?
3: PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation Tuesday night at nine, eight central on PBS.
0: I'm Marka Werman. This is The World. Time to answer our geoquiz now. If you were watching the Emmys last night, you probably caught the answer. Kevin Costner won lead actor in a miniseries for his work on Hatfields and McCoys. It's based on one of the most famous blood feuds in American history.
8: Kevin Costner, Hatfields and McCoys.
0: This didn't really figure to happen. In fact, uh, we had to go all the way to Romania to film this very American story. I'd like to thank that film community for helping us in Bucharest. So if- Wait a second. Did Kevin Costner just give a shout out to Bucharest to film his Western? Well, he did. And Romania is the answer to our quiz. Bogdan Moncha is marketing director for Castel Films, a movie production company outside Bucharest. What was your reaction to uh, Kevin Costner's shout out to uh, Bucharest and the good people of Romania?
10: Uh, we are very, very much surprised and uh, uh, very thankful. You know, it was great for us. We didn't expect to be mentioned on the first place, actually.
0: Yeah, it is a nice little touch. So, uh, scenes from Hatfields and McCoys, uh, where were they shot in Romania? I mean, what actually resembles West Virginia and Kentucky in Romania? The
10: series was shot on location uh, in Transylvania, uh, the large exteriors, and the rest uh, in our studio, where we recreated the town.
0: Right. How hard is that? And, and do uh, your Romanian producers have a good sensibility for what it takes to really kind of pull off a Western? Well, making
10: a Western, I don't think it's anything different than making a, another regular movie. Maybe it involves more working with horses or guns or things like that. But, you know, from the professional point of view, it's similar to any other production. How long has Romania been attracting Hollywood productions? Our company started in 1992, and since then we uh, serviced, co-produced almost 200 feature films, uh, mainly for uh, uh, United States companies. And what's the draw? Well, I wouldn't say there is one single advantage. I think it's a combination of several advantages of coming to shoot in Romania. I would mention here a very, very, very good film infrastructure, and that is uh, the studio, Equipment, crew, our sound engineer also won an an award for this occasion for technical achievements. Secondly, I would mention here locations. You've probably seen them in this series and in other movies. Uh, Very diverse, very uh, friendly. And uh, thirdly, but maybe not the last one, is a very, very good cost effectiveness.
0: What about unions? Are uh, are the uh, workers in films in Romania unionized? Non-union in Romania. Right. Bogdan, take us to Transylvania just a moment and and describe a a, a scene that you really enjoyed watching come together for Hatfields and McCoys.
10: I I, I can't say any any scene. The, the whole project was wonderful for us, and we had a, such a such a great experience. But there were nice epic scenes, you know, horses involved and and weapons firing and. You know, little battles, very dedicated actors that actually took part in the action and, uh, you know, rode the horses and did little stunts themselves.
0: How about the people in Transylvania? How'd they feel about all these uh, Western shoot 'em ups and horses riding through their villages?
10: It's not very new for them. They're kind of familiar already. And they like it because when a film crew comes to their place, there are more jobs. They work sometimes as maybe extras or... Uh, they build some sets or things like that. We employ local people a lot. So for them, it's great, and they enjoy it.
0: So is, is Romania the next Hollywood?
10: Yeah, you could say that. It's been uh, regarded like that since maybe 10, 12 years ago. And we continue to grow, and we continue to uh, accommodate many production, many U.S. productions, bigger and bigger, I might say.
0: Bogdan Montsha, marketing director for the shooting of the History Channel's miniseries Hatfields and McCoys in Romania. Bogdan, thanks very much. Thank you. Are you there, I said... All right, something a little more realistic now. Fanfara Cukurlia is a brass band from a small village in Romania. They were in New York this past weekend performing at the New York Gypsy Festival. Now, the word gypsy is sometimes seen as pejorative, and many prefer the term Roma, but the organizers of the festival are fine with the word gypsy. And so are the members of Fanfara Chukulia. Reporter Bruce Wallace was at the band's headlining show.
8: It didn't take long for the sold-out crowd at Fanfara Chukulia's Saturday night show in New York to get out of their seats. By the third song, the aisles were packed. Oprika Ivansia, the band's clarinet and sax player, was impressed.
1: You
5: are a very good dancer. Actually, you
9: are one of the best dancers which I see in my life. But, But the next song, you cannot
10: dance because it's too fast.
8: He was kind of kidding about not dancing, but the song's tempo was no joke. The 12 members of the band hail from a village in northeastern Romania called Zeczaprigine. They started playing together in school and were soon performing at baptisms and weddings. They might have remained on the Zeczaprigine wedding circuit if Henry Ernst, a German guy who'd gotten obsessed with Romanian music, hadn't stumbled into their remote village one day in 1996. Within a few minutes, Ernst had a beer in his hand and about 20 musicians playing for
3: him. They simply blowed me away, you know. It was magic. It was so powerful. It has such a humor that I decided not to stay for one hour. Uh, It's better to stay three months.
8: Ernst soon had the band touring Europe, then Japan and Australia and North America. They've cut a few albums too. Their live shows blend the traditional music of their Roma ancestry with other music from the Balkans and beyond. In the Beyond category are the James Bond theme, the Steppenwolf song Born to be Wild, which was featured in the movie Borat, and this version of Duke Ellington's Caravan. of the band's singers and trumpet players, Kostika Trefan, says hits like this were always a part of their repertoire. They were, after all, a wedding band. When I'm different styles, he says, we always play different styles. Weddings would start off with traditional music, but later people would start requesting ABBA or pop music or themes from TV soap operas. Trefan says that their popularity abroad has actually sparked a brass renaissance in their own village. There were glimpses in Saturday's show of what the epic day-long parties back in Zetrebergine must be like. At the end of the show, the band came back for a second encore. Instead of taking their places on stage, they launched into a song and marched straight into the audience. They snaked through the crowd and out into the lobby. You got the sense that they could have gone on forever. They didn't, though. There was an after-party to get to. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, New York.
0: love these guys. You can watch the band perform their version of Born to Be Wild at theworld.org. And while you're there, you can find out more about the New York Gypsy Festival from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation... And by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org PRI Public Radio International